Healthcare. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Uh, we are going to finally, finally, finally talk about weed for our white paper this week. Uh, I know people have been been waiting for this for for years, frankly. Weeds on the weed. Weed, weed. weed, on, weed the on the weeds. weeds. No, weeds are you, on Are you high weed. right now? It's a weeds on weed. Uh, the topic is weed. I guess so. Arguably. Weeds, I understand. I mean, that could suggest we are all yes, high right I, now, yes. but I think it actually... This is making me That's feel what high. I think is happening. <laughs> another um, another first today. Healthcare? Yeah, we're going to discuss healthcare. Uh, never Finally. Ta- we never talk about healthcare it's on time. this podcast. It's time. Sarah's been asking for it. Um, we're finally going to talk about healthcare. Um, yeah, so I um, so I think we're going to talk about some policy ideas that get less attention, kind of what grows out of this clusterfuck that is the Republican process. So I went on a 36-hour trip to Detroit, and in the time I was gone reporting a story, the Republican healthcare um, bill appears to have fallen into omni-shambles. This is now the second time I've left D.C. for less than a week and this, just watched this collapse. This is weird, Sarah. It's eerie. That you keep leaving, and as soon as you leave, just mysteriously, these complex, I don't know, man. highly motivated policy have efforts the, Have collapsed. the indivisible people talk to you about maybe moving? <laughs> I or? do get a lot of <laughs> tweets of people offering to house me outside of D.C. Oh, there you um, go. So I love Seattle. I'm considering, you know, minimum wage debates aside, <laughs> relocating and killing the Republican efforts once and for all. But so we, we saw, I think we're going to talk a little bit about kind of like where things are right now and then move into what could happen next. I mean, it feels like what has been revealed to me, um, you know, over the past 48 hours is that Republicans, like, never had a plan. There was never a goal associated with this legislation. And at some point, that catches up to you, that there was never a clear reason that BICRA, the Republican Senate health plan, there, there was no clear goal it was trying to solve. And at some point, Senators called that bluff, that they were not going to support something that was not making any clear improvement in the American healthcare system. So I'd like to, I think it'd be useful to go somewhat slowly through the very fast events of, was it Monday night? Sunday yeah. night? And so it starts, I think, like 8.30 Monday night so, is where this all starts. So the bill from early on, we're talking about the revised Senate bill which came out and had this Ted Cruz amendment, which we have discussed on a past weeds uh, that would basically blow up all insurance markets. And that bill had hard opposition from Senator Susan Collins on the more moderate side of the Republican Party, and then from Senator Rand Paul on the right of the Republican Party. And so it couldn't lose even another person. John McCain over the weekend developed a blood clot. And so he wasn't going to be around to take the vote. Without John McCain's vote, they couldn't move forward either, right? That, that meant they had lost someone. So the vote was already deferred. So we were already in a position where we thought we thought this was going to be a quiet week for healthcare. Like that, that was the expectation coming in. And then on uh, Monday night, there was a joint statement, more or less. I mean, it came out in tweets, but Mike Lee, who's quite conservative— and Jerry Moran, who nobody knows. <laughs> Quite bland. <laughs> bland <laughs> The Moran. Kansas senator. 
but they're not usually in the same wing of the Republican Party. It's, and I wouldn't say Moran is a moderate, but he's not one of the Rand Paul. He's a very generic. Cruz. He's a very yes. generic. I've Republican. never heard of him breaking with leadership exactly. on anything. So Lee comes out. They come out with a separate statement, same time, yeah, saying coordinated. We're not going to vote. We're for not going to vote for this. Lee saying we're not going to vote for it because they've not implemented the Cruz Amendment going far enough. Reasons that are super complicated and I don't think make a ton of sense. And then Moran with a a, a a statement I read many times and honestly still cannot fully parse, but the, was upset about single payer, does not like the closed process, doesn't want to hurt people. I mean, there's a lot going on in that statement that, like the bill itself, did not strike me as coming together to, to make a single argument. But by bringing out this sort of artillery, right? It wasn't just you have to buy off the right wing. It was now like Moran has an issue. They really killed it for the moment. And one thing that, that people discussed was that they were in some ways acting as cover for a lot of their other colleagues. That There was a lot of discussion um, and reporting. I mean, not incredibly well-sourced. Like I didn't see, you know, nobody else said this, but reporters were saying what, what was happening here was that a lot of Republicans wanted to kill this and Lee and Moran were the ones willing to step up and like, like put in the knife. So then, and, and this moved very fast in a very weird way. Then Mitch McConnell came out and said, well, fine, we're just going to vote on straight repeal or really the, the 2015 repeal and delay strategy, which I am old enough to remember when Republicans looked at that strategy and decided it was suicidal and insane. And the reason I'm old enough to remember that is because I, I was basically like this old. It happened just a yes. couple of months yeah. ago. Eons ago in January <laughs> when this was considered and rejected. So that, so, by the White but, House, too. By the White House, too. Although recently Trump has been saying they should just repeal and delay. But what's interesting about that is, is two things. One is that I remember when things would happen to the Affordable Care Act that would look like it was going to blow it up. But the drafters of the bill had a really good sense of what the policy possibilities were and what people wanted. And so you would end up in like when people threatened to blow things up, like Joe Lieberman over the public option, over the Medicare buy-in, like people would figure out how to negotiate around things or they would decide if they could live without them. But that didn't happen here. McConnell did something pretty unusual, which is he went and said, OK, fine, if you just go, if you just agree to the motion to proceed to a debate, we will actually just vote on straight repeal, which is a punitive measure. People pointed this out. It's a punitive measure at the more moderate wing of the Republicans. Like that's what the hardcore right wanted the whole time. But the more moderates, the I mean, I guess you could even put the Morans in this camp maybe, but although I think he said he'd be fine with that, but that's a vote designed to make people like Rob Portman and Susan Collins look bad because they voted for this, or Collins didn't, but a lot of the others voted for this in 2015. And now McConnell is going to show that when they voted for it, they weren't being serious. Uh, they, they were basically lying to their constituents, saying they, they supported something they didn't really support. Rich Lowry, the editor of the National Review, wrote a, a pretty searing column about this, where he said, like, nothing is more exciting to Republicans and pretending to, to repeal Obamacare. Anyway, repeal with the and delay is a bad idea. So immediately a bunch of people came out and killed that. Uh, Shelley Moore Capito, kill, Capito, we, did we Capito. go Capito, Capito we went through this. So that got killed pretty quick, although whether McConnell still tried is an open question. Then McConnell suggested, you know, maybe we'll just move on to tax reform and infrastructure. Then today, Trump came out and said, I don't understand why Republicans in the Senate never talk about how great their health care bill is. We're going to have a lunch about this and we're going to fix everything. So we are speaking to you before this lunch. It looks like this bill is dead, um, but 
this is a fast moving situation. What there is not a hint of right now is a theory of how it is resuscitated. How do you answer people's concerns? Now, to those of us who watched the House bill process, this looks a lot like that. There was that moment when the bill was dead. It failed in a dramatic vote on the floor, then came back after Paul Ryan said we were moving on. Uh, so, you know, it's not dead till it's dead. But I think there but, the answer was just expecting people to roll over on their qualms. Because yeah. like they made this MacArthur amendment that did nothing to solve the issues that moderates, um, you know, were raising with it, threw in some money, you know, at the request of Fred Upton. And it essentially relied on people deciding, like, I really care about repealing Obamacare and I am willing to, like, set aside some of my concerns that I have about this bill. And I think senators have proved slightly less malleable so far on, on some of the things that House members were willing to bend on. Can but I add two is- real quick things just to my story that I realized I forgot? One was that when the House did that, Part of the reason was they said the Senate will fix it, right? It was like, let's get it to the Senate and then they'll like do a good job. But the other thing I just wanted to mention this story because I think this is more important than people have given it credit for. Something came out in the last week and a half and it, was, it came out in a very weird way was that McConnell had been going around telling moderates that the Medicaid cuts in the bill would never go into effect. The, the bill has these very deep Medicaid cuts. And, and the weird way this came out was Senator Ron Johnson, who has also been a thorn in leadership side during this process, although he's not traditionally been a thorn in leadership side, but now he was more on board for the bill. But he decided to go off and do his own reporting and then tweet the results where he said, I have now spoken to multiple of my colleagues who say McConnell told them the Medicaid cuts wouldn't go into effect. So there also began to be a feeling among Republicans that McConnell, in a process they already didn't like and they felt was too secretive and they felt locked out from, that McConnell was also double dealing on them. Make your next move with a beautiful website from Squarespace. Squarespace, we've talked about them a lot. Uh, This is the company that you use to make a website for really anything you need. Uh, You make it really simple. uh, You make it really easy. They've got award-winning templates that are designed by professionals. And it's it's this great all-in-one full-service platform. There's nothing to install, nothing to patch, nothing to upgrade ever. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support, a unique domain experience that's fully transparent and simple to set up. Uh, So Squarespace, I mean, who uses this? Everybody uses this because it's 2017 and you should have a website. Uh, Musicians, designers, artists, restaurants, all kinds of small businesses. If you are doing something and you want people to be able to find you, find your contact information, stuff like that, you should get a website. You should get one that looks great. You should get one that's easy to set up and that you can manage yourself without any kind of real knowledge, real expertise. That's what Squarespace offers. It's just an incredibly comprehensive solution to the basic, like you want a website, you want it to work, you want it to look nice. You don't want to need to be some like code expert. Uh, and, and that's what you can do with them. Okay, so here's what you need to know. Go to Squarespace, use offer code WEEDS, you'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website and a domain name. Uh, it's going to be great. Squarespace, offer code WEEDS. The reason I don't think the bill is dead is that to me, fundamentally, Mike Lee and Jerry Moran and this kind of person can't kill Obamacare repeal. That something we saw in the House was that, well, it seemed like there were critical weaknesses in the left of the caucus. The vocal, upfront, out there, willing to have articles written about them, about how they were fighting with leadership people, were the Freedom Caucus people. And those Freedom Caucus people, I mean, a crucial difference between Democratic and Republican parties, right, is that in the Democratic Party, 
the sort of mainstream members have a donor base and an activist base, and the moderate members have a somewhat independent donor base who supports them. In the Republican Party, the mainstream members have the mainstream donor base, and the rightward fringe has its independent donor base. But the moderate members don't have some, like, different leg that they can stand on institutionally from leadership. And you really saw this in the House, that, you know, people were saying, look— it's true that if I'm Barbara Comstock and I need to run for re-election in a district that swung heavily to Hillary Clinton, like, I don't really want to have an unpopular vote on my record. But I also don't want to have party leadership saying I'm not a frontline priority because they don't have what, like, blue dog Democrats traditionally had, which was some separate group of money that's going to go stand by them. The Senate is a little bit different in that regard, uh, not so much in, in terms of donors, but in terms of senators or higher profile people. So someone like Susan Collins is a huge political franchise in Maine. She's like, she's way bigger than the game. Uh, it's a small state. She's been there for a long time. Uh, she's probably personally met every single voter in the state of Maine. Uh, Lisa Murkowski won a write-in campaign against the Republican Party nominee. So that's sort of similar. You get someone like John McCain, right? He ran 12 points ahead of Donald Trump in Arizona. Rob Portman similarly ran way ahead of Donald Trump in Ohio. Dean Heller is like a low-profile senator, but the governor of the state there is incredibly popular, has an 80% approval rating, doesn't like the bill. Portman is a similar situation. John Kasich has been a very vocal opponent of the bill, is very popular in Ohio. Those people, I believe, can kill Obamacare repeal because they all have, due to their sort of in-state fame, support from local governors, in Murkowski's case, to an extent, institutional support in, in Alaska politics. If they stand up and they say in like a clear way, we are not voting for a bill that contains these Medicaid cuts we've complained about, then like it'll die. But I think as long as Mike Lee is saying, like, in some obscure way that we don't really understand their implementation of the Cruz Amendment isn't deregulatory enough, like, at the end of the day, the version of the Cruz Amendment that's in this bill is a lot more deregulatory than not passing the bill. And it it always feels like tactical gamesmanship and, and playing for something. And we haven't yet seen the moderate senators really kill this. You know, they could say a bunch of them, you would want three or four of them standing together at a press conference to say, we do not want a bill whose priorities are shaped by Ted Cruz. We want to do a bipartisan bill that addresses problems people have with the Affordable Care Act and that tries to fulfill President Trump's promises to lower deductibles, increase coverage, blah, 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 blah. There's been, what is this? This is July 19th. Moderate members have at no point said that. They've never stood together. They've never said that the bill should fulfill the Republican Party's promises in the bill. And they've, they've never even tried to push back against this notion that what Republicans promised is what Mike Lee wants. Because it's, it's not true, like, at all. There's just crazy, flagrant, constant lying about their own promises. And, like, you can roll the tape. They said 
over and over and over again. They would protect people with pre-existing conditions. They would make premiums and deductibles lower. This legislation they're pushing, it doesn't do any of that. And the best I think they could say in their defense is like, well, we were lying all along and the voters should have known it. But like, I don't think the voters knew that. So one of the things like when I think about this, you know, the two factions holding it up, moderates versus conservatives, it always felt like a tell during the House debate was the conservatives got quite clear on what they wanted. I remember the the starting point when the House bill, like, comes back as, like, zombie, aha, and, like, rises from the dead is when the Freedom Caucus leaders give an interview to the Washington Examiner, a um, conservative publication, where they say, these are the two things we want. We want to be able to get out of essential health benefits and... Um, what was the second thing? The MacArthur way. Oh, God, I'm having a Rick Perry moment right now. It was essential health benefits and one other big Obamacare regulation that they wanted to get over. I don't remember. Oh, man, getting old. Um, anyways, they, they were very clear on their demands. They said, if too you. Too much do, weed on the weeds. Too much <laughs> As you will learn in our next segment, it is <laughs> it, decrease, it, it is not enhancing our. Yeah, it degrades podcast. your podcasting capabilities. Exactly. But anyway, <laughs> so they, they say, this is what we want. We have two non negotiables. You meet those and we're in. And the moderates never really did that. They never said, like, here is what we want. Like, here is we need X spending on Medicaid or we need no block grants or no per capita caps. Like, they were never very clear on what it is they were trying to achieve. And that seems, looking in hindsight, like the moment when you figure it out, like, oh, they're they're going to cave on something. Like, they never made clear what it is they were trying to get out of that process. We haven't seen that split develop on in the Senate side yet. I think we saw it a bit with the Cruz amendment, but it seemed it went down in a really confusing way where Cruz said, oh, my amendment's in the bill. And Mike Lee started talking about risk pools in a way that I honestly still do not fully understand his gripe with the health care bill, despite much time with experts trying to understand it. But you saw a version of that where they said, OK, this is what we want. This is what will get us on board. And you don't see that from the moderates, which I think, to Matt's point, suggests to me there is space for that they have left that door open to getting on board by not saying, you know, here's our non-negotiable, here's here's our hard line. I think that's right. I think there are a couple pieces of this that are interesting. So one, though, is that compared to what happened in the House bill, remember that the Cruz Amendment has not been scored yet by the CBO. Nobody... Nobody knows, right? People, it's pretty clear what it does. But but Republican senators who I think are, it's fair to say, have not thought very hard about health care for the most part, really do not know. And I don't think people are prepared for what's going to happen when the analyses of that come out, which now there's enough time that if this bill continues to go forward, they will. There's some talk that they wouldn't get it scored by CBO, but I, I don't. I would like to think that won't be possible. It is much worse than what the, than the MacArthur Amendment. It would destroy pre-existing conditions protection in every state simultaneously. Like, yes. because this bill is built around giant, vague, direct payments to insurance companies, the insurers have been the only health industry group that has been reasonably not very vocally opposed. They are flipping out over the Cruz Amendment, right? They're like, this is unworkable. There would be no protection for pre-existing conditions. It will create death spirals. I mean, they're going full hog on this. And so one thing that I thought before all this happened was that we were like sitting at an apex of the bill because at some point, like people were going to like look at this thing and then they were going to like, oh shit, like, well, we can't do that. Then Lee's thing came out. It was such a strange issue with the Cruz Amendment. It has to do with whether or not you have one or two risk pools. 
um, or possibly more than two. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But it was so small that it made me wonder if it wasn't just cover. Yeah. If it was just like a, like my understanding yeah. is the reason they didn't do the multi-risk pool thing it has to actually do with reconciliation and, and bird. I don't know why. Yeah, it was um, <laughs> like something that honestly, you know, insurance companies could not make heads or tails of. Um, the, the qualm that he was raising is that it seemed to preserve a single risk pool, meaning like sick, doesn't matter if you're on like the shitty plans, the good plans, everyone's health is taken into effect when you set rates, which would presumably raise the prices of the shitty plans because you're still getting those sick people in the pricing. But no insurance source I talked to understood how you would make this work in real life. Everyone I spoke with, you know, including people at Blue Cross Blue Shield Association were saying, there's this just isn't workable. It, it would become two risk pools. It was such a weird, yeah. arcane issue that was very difficult just, for it, most of us to it's navigate. It's just like not what you would blow the yes. bill up over, right? Yes. That's something you would negotiate over. Like you would figure something out. Right. So then I want to like pull back on this, just, just a couple ticks and, and note, we have not talked a lot in this process about Donald Trump. And I actually think that's really important. Um, I, I've been talking to some people and looking at this and trying to think about the Affordable Care Act. And one of the, the things I've really come to believe about this is the fact that Donald Trump does not understand this bill at all, does not understand his position at, on health care in any clear way, does not make clear statements that are consistent with each other, has become a real problem. There is no discipline being imposed on this process. Mitch McConnell is not the person in the Republican Party who is supposed to be deciding what the health care policy vision is. That's like not what anybody thought Mitch McConnell would be doing a couple of years ago. It's not what he has done in the past. It's not what he likes doing. He does not care about health care. And so right now what's happening is the view is like, all right, Donald Trump's going to come in and have lunch with people and save this bill. Donald Trump has frequently, when these bills are collapsing, gone and had meetings with members of Congress. And every one of them, at least up until now, we don't know how this one will go, has gone terribly. And the reason it has gone terribly is that like we are a little bit confused about what Mike Lee's issue is. Donald Trump like, has no fucking idea and has not tried to learn. Um, and so he'll go into these meetings and he'll tell people these superficial, like banal political things like, oh, you know, like I'd really hate to be running for reelection in 2018 if we don't repeal and replace Obamacare. And people are like, well, excuse me, like I have an issue with the bill. And then he will like repeat something about his grand electoral college victory. And people feel insulted by it. They, they're like, they feel like this guy doesn't know what's going on. It's the opposite of Obama at the Blair House, where Obama just knew more about the legislation than basically any member, any Democratic or Republican member of Congress and would calm Democrats by they would have an issue and then he would come up with a persuasive response. And, you know, like that's how you get people on board. You actually have to convince them. A real problem this bill has is that there is no leadership. Paul Ryan, I think, was the likeliest candidate to be the policy leader on this, but he detonated his own reputation by the way he handled the House bill, which nobody liked and sort of like pulled the curtain back on Paul Ryan. Then McConnell took over, but you really need the White House with its technical capacity, right? It has OMB, it has HHS, with Donald Trump, who is the most public salesperson for the bill, out making good arguments for it in public, showing that you can run on this bill successfully with the various people in the White House, including Trump, talking to members, persuading them, hearing their concerns, offering credible responses. And like, you're not seeing any of that happen right now. 
So like on the one hand, you have objections that don't make sense that are very complicated. On the other hand, you have a president whose statements don't make sense, who's already talking about repealing and replacing or repealing and delaying, who doesn't know any of the underlying issues, who is not allowing himself to be held to what he has said on healthcare. And it's just, it's a really, it would be amazing if something passes out of this process because like what it will mean is that nothing we think about and how policymaking works is actually true and it just doesn't matter. But this is a total clusterfuck. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, another shoe that hasn't quite dropped here is that when the House was passing the bill, there was this like flurry of quotes from sort of more vulnerable House members about how, well, like the Senate's going to fix it or I'm casting this vote to move the process along. And the heavy expectation at that point was that the Senate would make the bill somewhat more moderate. And then the expectation developed that the Senate would make the bill somewhat more moderate, which would ease the qualms of nervous House moderates, and that the Freedom Caucus had agreed to swallow it, right? That there wasn't going to be a a back-and-forth ping-pong or another round of conservative rejections. But the Senate has, in fact, made the bill much, 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 much more extreme, right? It has gone to, I would say, if you looked at the House bill, there were a lot of different objections to it. And the Senate bill has addressed specifically the objections raised by Avik Roy, right? But like, and not even all of those, it's worth saying. But, but, Although Ovik is being quiet about his objections, oh, but, quieter but, but, about his objections But some now. of them, you know, yeah. it, 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 it definitely tackled his... <laughs> qualms about the house his bill. qualms with the tax credits yes the yes. pre the premium tax credits right but yeah. if your concern about the house bill was that the house bill was going to be bad for people with pre-existing conditions this takes it and it makes it much much worse but also applies it to all of the states and if your concern about the house bill was that it cut medicaid a lot this slows the implementation of the medicaid cuts a little bit but then cranks them up to like a million percent right so it's way more conservative and we have not heard like boo from carlos corbello daryl issa like all these other house members and it's at least conceivable that if whatever comes out of whatever Mike Lee is trying to do will produce another round of dissension in the House if people look at it. Um, I don't know that that's true. I think you sort of never go uh, broke in D.C. counting on Republican moderates to, to fold at some point. But I would imagine that a certain number of California House Republicans were saying to themselves, look, uh, there's all these activists yelling about this MacArthur Amendment, but the reality is is that California is super-duper-duper-duper liberal. There's no way these waivers are going to be applied for here in California. My constituents are going to look at this and say, oh, it was much ado about nothing, and like it's not going to be a problem, or there'll be a state budget problem, but there's always a problem there, and these morons and the legislature are always spending more money than I want on things. So so who really cares? Uh, under the Cruz Amendment, though, like, this is coming for California, right? It's, it's coming for everywhere. And the Medicaid cuts are particularly severe on the high-cost states, like, again, California, on the states that have 
programs that were fairly generous pre-expansion, like, again, California. And I don't know if those guys, like, care at all about their lives or their constituents or or anything. Uh, I think the process so far has shown a lot of not really caring about this kind of thing, but it makes you wonder. So I don't actually think it's necessarily coming for California, because I think you'd see, like, liberal states essentially, like, ratchet up their regulations, say, like, sure, national law allows those plans to be sold, but in our insurance market, like— you can't sell those shitty plans. So I think you could actually see a possible outcome similar to the MacArthur Amendment, except you'd have to proactively regulate up versus, like, get the waiver out. It's a bit different. Like, maybe a few states, like, on the edge case would end up in different situations. But I think you'd see a backlash where, like, the states that run their own marketplaces now, like those 14, would decide to have regulations that require essentially ACA level coverage, but it'd be hard because you'd have a lot less financial support. So you'd be requiring people to buy more expensive plans, but offering them less help to do so. So it would be a hard calculation in a state like California, New York, like might be rich enough to preserve ACA. But I don't know, like maybe like Oregon or something is going to struggle to do that. Let's imagine this lunch happens today. And coming out of it, Republican senators or even Republican members of Congress think, you know, Maybe we shouldn't pass a bill that nobody likes and will clearly make the lives of almost everybody affected by it worse. Like Maybe that's just not what we came here to do. What if we did something else? Like, what if we didn't have reconciliation tying our hands and we worked with Democrats to try to, you know, do something that accorded more to what we had promised and what every poll shows people want? What might they do, Sarah? <laughs> what might they do? Well, you could go small ball or, or big on this. So I think in the short term, you're going to see more discussion about stabilizing the Affordable Care Act marketplace. Um, Senator Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, a Republican, who, who's pretty senior. He chairs um, the Health Committee, which oversees a lot of health care issues. But um I've noticed this pattern from him where he doesn't say much. And then, like, when <laughs> when he senses a collapse is nigh, he puts out a statement about, like, how they need to do something to stabilize the marketplaces. And he did exactly that this uh, on Tuesday, saying he's going to start a number of hearings on stabilizing the insurance markets. And this is actually a space where you do see significant overlap between what Democrats and Republicans propose. The problem is... Um, Republicans propose these stabilization policies as part of an Obamacare repeal bill, whereas Democrats would like to see them as just like a standalone thing. So these are, I consider these like pretty small policy changes that most of us will not notice, but for the 10 or so million people who get coverage on the marketplace could matter a lot. There are things like creating a reinsurance fund to pay for the people who are especially high cost in the marketplaces, um, making sure that those cost-sharing reduction subsidies that the Trump administration has waffled on get paid. Um, A lot of these were outlined in a proposal from 10 House Democrats last um, two weeks ago where they said, you know, we can't just keep talking about how great Obamacare is when there are clearly issues it is facing that we need to actually put forward um, an affirmative policy agenda. So this is a group of 10 centrist Democrats. This is, um, you know, their effort. Nancy Pelosi knows about their effort but is not endorsing this policy. So it's a bit of a, um, you know, kind of from the ground Movement. So those are like small ball policies to to solve some of the problems affecting the marketplace. I think the big place you could go, you know, when you ask the question, like, what would people want is they want lower health care prices. Like poll after poll finds that the thing that people are most frustrated with is like 
how much it costs to get healthcare in the United States, that their prescriptions cost so much and like everything is just so much more expensive because you're purchasing it in the United States. And this is something like Obamacare, you know, didn't deal with. There were some efforts to reduce the volume of healthcare to like have less MRIs in the United States, but nothing to like get the unit cost of an MRI in the United States somewhere in like neighborhood of Switzerland or France, which is a fraction of what we pay here. So if you want to like do what Americans actually want, you would do something, you know, to regulate or reduce or lower the prices into the range of other countries. And no political party has shown any appetite to do anything close to that. Let me ask you about, uh, on, on the more modest side of what they can do to stabilize markets, what did Alaska do? Oh, Alaska. I thought this was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, but so, I, don't, I don't remember the details. <laughs> Alaska did something really interesting that other states are following. So they were in a pretty difficult situation in 2016. Premiums were set to rise 40% in the state. It was like one of those Obamacare horror stories about how premiums were going to just be jacked up. Everyone would be paying a lot of money. So the insurance regulator there, um, this woman, Lori Wing Hire, she comes up with this really interesting plan where she says, what if we promise to pay back the insurance companies that have really high claims, the people who get stuck with the super expensive patients? And they set up this scheme funded by the state. So they are putting, it did, it did cost the state about $50 million or so. Where $50 the, million dollar insurer bailout fund. An insurer bailout fund passed by Alaska, um, where the Alaska legislature said, we will pay you back for the high claim. So don't jack up your premiums. Like, if you get someone who has one of these, I think they identified 33 high-cost diseases and said, if you get someone with this, we will help pay the claims. Um, so instead of premiums going up 40% um, this year, they went up 7%. So it's a huge decline. One of the things Alaska quickly realized is because premiums did not go up a lot, they were getting less money from the federal government. The tax subsidies just weren't as big because people needed less help to pay their premiums. So like, wait a minute, we are saving the federal government like $40 million. They should pay for this reinsurance program. Like they should give us the money just in a different format. So they went to then the Obama administration and said, hey, we want we want you to give us this money instead of us putting up the state funds. The Obama administration said, yeah, we think that's a good idea. The Obama administration lost the election. They had to reapply essentially with the Trump administration who just last week said, yes, like we think this is a good way to stabilize Obamacare in Alaska. So it was this kind of surprising way that the Trump administration is making Obamacare work a lot better in Alaska. If they had said no to this program, they could have caused premiums to rise very significantly. But the net result is Alaska still has to kick in. I think it's like $9 million or so, but the federal government is sending them $48 million to pay for high-cost patients because it expects the federal government to spend $48 million less on premium support. And it's an approach that could work in a lot of states. Um, Minnesota has a similar waiver application in with the Trump administration. Oregon and New Hampshire are reportedly considering similar ideas. So it's a pretty easy fix that we've seen. And it was, it felt a little weird to watch the Trump administration approve something that's going to make Obamacare work better. And I can't fully fit it into a lot of things they're doing to make Obamacare work worse. But it suggested to me they are not ready to, like, push the explode button. Like, Donald Trump keeps tweeting about how Obamacare is going to explode, and they had a chance to explode it in Alaska, and they did not take it. They decided to go the non-explosion route. 
Summer's a great time to do something new, uh, to get inspired by a new hobby. Uh, the Great Courses Plus is, is a great source of that kind of thing. You know, you can spend hours watching these fascinating video lectures. You learn from award-winning experts about the topics that interest you, uh, politics, world economics, psychology, and you can watch whenever you want. You can stream from a, a smartphone, a tablet, a laptop, a TV, whatever. Uh, but what's even better is you can download the lectures and watch offline. It, it's great for your summer plane trips, uh, other kinds of travel. The Fundamentals of Photography is a great course to watch, uh, particularly if you're, if you're taking trips taking vacations. It's taught by a real National Geographic photographer, and he teaches you, you know, how to not just be kind of like a, an idiot with a digital camera snapping pictures or whatever. Uh, it teaches you how to use lighting, how to frame your photo, and, and there's some really advanced methods in there. You know, I mean, this guy's a, a real pro, but also some really like basic tips about how to actually stop set back, take a deep breath, think about the framing of your shot, so the photos you're taking all the time just start looking better. Uh, so I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus, too. It's one of my listeners. You get unlimited access to all of their courses free for one month when you sign up to our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Start your free month today. Uh, they're confident you're going to love it. Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. There are a lot of big changes people might like to see to healthcare, right? Like you might want to have Medicare for all, or you might want to draconian price regulations on pharmaceuticals, and then people would have like strong objections to that. But this Alaska thing was a case of like, like it was reasonable. It was just like a reasonable win-win deal. And it's not like a huge deal, but it makes people's lives better. And it just, it has not consistently been the case that like if state insurance regulators or governors have ideas that for small amounts of money could help a lot of people, that there has been collaboration to make that work, yeah. you know, because Republicans laid down this like toxic waste around Obamacare and the Trump administration has been with one hand at least continuing to do that. And it's like a Huge question, right? I mean, around the whole repeal effort is like, will we ever turn the pivot on that and go back to we're having Alaska type conversations where proposals to make things better that cost large amounts of money, Republicans say no to because they're like skeptical about spending large amounts of money, but proposals where like for a little money or in this case, like it's no net cost to the federal government, but you have to sign the paperwork. So they do it like that's very that's very nice. It's very natural. Yeah. And there's a handful. It's of like really what we haven't had that float around like another one that was in these in the Democrat, the House Democrats proposal that has kicked around a little bit is moving open enrollment to tax season. So basically aligning the moment people sign up for insurance with the time when they're typically getting their tax refunds to make it a little bit of an easier time period to have some extra cash. Right now, um, the open enrollment period is going to be quite short. It's going to end on December 15th, right when people are buying Christmas presents and a moment of financial stress. So again, this is something that like probably would not cost the government much money um, I think people are used to having open enrollment in the fall because that's what it happens with employers. But it's this kind of interesting proposal. I think it was um, Brian Hale at Jackson, or he's at the Tennessee government now. He used to work for Jackson Hewitt, was the first guy to suggest this. And it's kicked around a little bit. But again, it's like a small, small idea that doesn't really cost money that might make Obamacare work a little bit better. I think there is like a big point in here, which is if you were actually concerned that Obamacare's exchanges 
are in some areas of the country not working that well. There are a lot of technical fixes based on what we've learned and, and seen over the past couple of years of implementation you, you, could, you could put into play. And we're in this sort of weird conversation where it's like Republicans keep pointing at this house that like has some leaks in the roof and it's like the plumbing isn't great. And, you know, there's like stuff I think you there's do a to the goat house. in it, too, from one of the right, earlier yeah. analogies. Um, and then like, listen, this house is in terrible shape. And like then they like drive up with a bulldozer and it's like, wait. Do you want to fix a house or do you want there to be no house? And like that's been like the weird thing in all their rhetoric. Like what they keep saying is they want to fix the house. Donald Trump suggests it's a bad thing. Obamacare is, you know, detonating, which it isn't, but nevertheless. But they don't want to fix it. They don't want to make it better. They don't have solutions that are responsive to the problems. They don't have solutions that are proportionate to the problems. They don't have alternative solutions that um, are a different way of solving the underlying problems that Obamacare is meant to solve. Like they keep all of their work is based on this premise that. Obamacare is terrible and it is failing and it needs to be fixed and it needs to be replaced. And just none of it is true in the way they're saying it. You could really imagine a policymaking process, you know, the one that Lamar Alexander is hinting at, where you think, okay, you know, what are the kinds of insurance markets? What are the kinds of places that are having problems under Obamacare, right? Of the 3,140 some counties, um, 38 counties might not have an insurer next year. What do we do about those counties? Of the other counties, how many only have one insurer? What kinds of places only have one insurer? And how would we attract more insurers into the market? Like, what do they need? What are they worried about? Like, you could do this. You could make these exchanges better um, if you wanted to. And I think and there's, Republicans yeah. just so far don't want to. But I think there's also... Democrats have been very shy about talking about those places where I think there's a little bit of tension between wanting to defend the Affordable Care Act and bringing attention to the parts of the ACA that aren't working. And I think this, you know, group of centrist Democrats who who I spoke with about their plan, they really felt this tension. They felt like, um, you know, there was, I believe it was Kurt Schrader, who's um, a representative from Oregon, was telling me, you know, he felt like they've just become the party of no, like no Obamacare repeal, keep Obamacare, save Obamacare without offering an affirmative plan that says, yeah, there are some problems and like here is how we would fix it. There is a lot of discussion about single payer coverage, about moving to a completely different healthcare system, which I think is more interesting and exciting and big picture than small technical fixes like a reinsurance program for high-risk patients. But I, I think also some of this grows out of a hesitance of Democrats to talk about these type of programs and to say, like, yeah, there are some problems and, and be upfront about those problems at a moment when they're nervous to do so because the Affordable Care Act is, is under so much siege. But I also think from progressives' point of view, right, I mean, if you— are a typical House Democrat who was around, you know, in the late Bush years, the early Obama years, like, they told you that this would not work and that the bill needed a public option that was going to be available in every county. They were promised by the president of the United States that there would 
be such a public option. It was taken out at the behest of Joe Lieberman and Max Baucus, who created a system that House Democrats, they kicked and screamed, they begged and pleaded, they made a big show of doing a Mike Lee, like, we're not going to vote for this thing. And then, like, you know, people got in, we're like, no, guys, like, you got to suck it up and vote for this. And so, like, they feel like they have the answer, right? The answer is that Medicare should cover everybody. The answer is that failing that, Medicare should cover more people. Failing that, you should be able to buy into Medicare. But you, you know what I mean? That like, that, like, this is a completely solved problem. And the, the problem was then created by Republicans, the health insurance industry, centrist Democrats, who didn't want to do that. And so, on the one hand, like, I, I agree with you, Sarah. Like, it's, it's a little bit unconstructive. Like, it would be good for more progressive members to also participate in these kind of discussions. But, like, they had their answer in 1946, they had their answer in 1966. They had their answer in 1996. It's still their answer. And, like, I think they were given to understand that industry stakeholders were so powerful and so politically influential that they couldn't have their solution. And now they're looking around and it's like, wow, the entire health insurance industry appears to control maybe two Senate votes. <laughs> so, like, what what the fuck, you know? And, like, that's, I think, you know, a real dilemma around all of this is that if the industry groups are not able to, and maybe they will be. I mean, we, you know, this is a fluid situation. It's it's totally possible that by next week, we will have, like, turned the page on Obamacare repeal, and we will be talking about these pragmatic fixes, and everyone will sort of look back from a distance and say, like, Oh, industry stakeholders stopped Republicans from killing Obamacare, focused things on pragmatic fixes, blunted the momentum towards single payer. And in the end, this sort of like business friendly solution was a huge success. And we don't know what these old podcast episodes are about. <laughs> but, but at the moment, it looks like they've just like proven to be paper tigers. And so it's like the rank and file safe seat. House Democrats don't want to, like, come ride to the rescue of rural hospitals or whoever. So what's the secret to a well-groomed guy? The Art of Shaving. It was founded in New York in 1996, and The Art of Shaving has been helping guys look their best for over 20 years. And they got your total routine covered. Shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, fragrance, everything. Their award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients, pure essential oils. Uh, the four elements of the perfect shave have been created to deliver smooth results every day. You can prep skin with their signature pre-shave oil, create a thick, foamy lather with shaving cream applied with a shave brush, shave, replenish moisture with your aftershave balm. You can finish off the perfect shave with one of their five new fragrances. Uh, they've got sandalwood and cypress, oud suede, vetiver citron, green lavender, and coriander and cardamom. I like that last one especially. It smells like, you know, good spices, easy to pronounce. Each cologne has been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. Uh, the Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service. It lets you shave on your favorite products while never having to worry. And the best thing is that our listeners can get 15% off their first order and free shipping if you use promo code WEEDS. Uh, so to get this offer, you go online to theartofshaving.com. Use the special promo code WEEDS to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer or for a consultation with a grooming expert, step into one of their many retail locations. There's sure to be one near you. So, I can't think of a good transition here. Weed. <laughs> so, Weed. what if they all bought legal marijuana? Yeah, so what if they tried to legislate while using legal marijuana? Did you want, you want to describe this uh, 
paper, Matt? Because you're better at pronouncing the names of European cities than oh I am. Oh, God. This is like a pronunciation <laughs> disaster. Okay, so we, we want to talk about a paper that was was actually published a, a couple of, of years ago, but uh, that Ezra and I had recently been talking about with with some some experts. It, the title is High Achievers? Question <laughs> mark Cannabis Access and Academic Performance. It's brought to us by Olivier Marie and Ulf Zolitz. Can I, can I just say... Excellent title. Really oh, yeah. Excellent title. title. Is the high in solid. quotes? Yes. Okay. The high is in scare quotes. Definitely one also, of the best titles of a white paper we've had yeah. on the week. To give to give credit, too, I mean, this appears to be a couple of uh, Dutch guys had to come up with this pun in English. So, you know, it's it's challenging. Um, so at any rate... The they, gauntlet has been laid, NBER authors. Yeah, right. Yes. And this is also not an NBER paper. It's an IZA paper, cool. which is, it's like the NBER of Europe. Um, so they are looking at an interesting situation that arose in the uh, Dutch city of Maastricht which is uh, very close to the border of Belgium. It sort of has Belgium on two or three different sides of it. And like a lot of, it's a big university town. Um, and like a lot of Dutch cities, they first uh, legalized or decriminalized, I don't know what you call it, but whatever the Netherlands situation is with marijuana and coffee shops. Um, and it became- They coffee shopped it. <laughs> and it became a big haven for international drug tourism, particularly since it was so close to the border. And also a lot of uh, Belgian college students were enrolled in the university there. So then something many, many, many Dutch cities have done is change the law so that only Dutch citizens can buy marijuana at the coffee shops. So you can't, like, come over from England or Germany for your, like, party weekend to go there. But in Maastricht, this had the effect of cutting the Belgian commuter students off from the marijuana that the Dutch students were enjoying. And the study shows that basically there was a a big increase in the grades of the Belgian students. Um, It was driven by younger students. Effects were stronger for women and for low performers. The effects were concentrated in math and science-y type things. And interestingly, uh, their research suggests that it's not that they sort of spent more time studying because they weren't spending so much time getting high, but that even with the exact same amount of time studying, they just did better in school because their brains were less addled by by weed. Well, can I, one thing about this policy, I was coming new to this paper, was the thing that was just insane to me about this, and this was recent, it was in like 2011 or so that this happened. Yeah. It wasn't just letting Dutch kids buy marijuana, but they made, the, it was also a, a few other nationalities I think French were like on, oh, here it is. They made this kind of crazy poster where if you were from Belgium or Germany, you were allowed to buy weed. But if you were from France, Luxembourg, or any other countries, you were excluded from this policy. They note, um, I'll share this in our Facebook group, but there was this kind of really somewhat offensive poster that like they put up in weed stores where it listed like the countries where people were allowed, the nationalities that were allowed to purchase weed. Um, if you guys are looking on the paper, it's at page 29 of the paper, has this like big yes side where it says Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, and then this big no side where it like calls out France and Luxembourg. Because apparently these were the ones, I don't know, causing all the ruckus while they were high um, in every other country. It was just very odd to me that this policy existed. It was so nationalistic, like deciding these are the countries where you cannot buy marijuana from. Um 
it, it is very odd to me that this policy experiment existed in the form that it did. So uh, a couple things on this. So one, the, the size of the effect is actually reasonably significant. The students who cannot buy marijuana anymore performed on average 9% of a standard deviation better and were 5%, 5.4% more likely to pass courses when banned from going to the coffee shops, uh, which, which is a reasonably big effect and, and something the authors note. <laughs> they have a sort of funny discussion right at the end where they say, this might be an upper bound estimate because Dantra, <laughs> because our marijuana is so powerful, <laughs> the THC content is so high. But then they also say this might be a lower bound estimate because it's plausible that uh these commuter students have friends who live there, and so they're just smoking their friends' weed. Right, <laughs> which that's the seemed, thing. Yeah, seems to me like clearly this is a lower bound estimate. Right, and, and so if you're looking for policy implications here, we're doing legalization in different states in America. I am pro legalization. We live in we live in D.C. where it's legalized, although there isn't a market in it. You can only grow yourself and gift, and um, that seems complicated <laughs> to grow to grow, but. This is not a costless policy. Like there, there's a lot of medical research suggesting marijuana has effects on um, recall on some kinds of abilities that would be important for, for school and particularly numerical abilities would be important for school. And this appears to confirm that. The one thing that, that I do want to note about this paper that I think is true for laws around pot just generally, because we think about them in isolation, right? We think about should we decriminalize or legalize marijuana full stop? I am quite sure if you did a paper like this around alcohol, you would find a very large effect. Like if all of a sudden, like <laughs> Belgian students could not have beer because like they just couldn't get it. But all the Dutch students, Dutch, right? Yes, no, Belgium thought, was on the yes list. Right. So it I was, guess it's um, French. France and Luxembourg that were the rebel yeah, rousers. Right. I keep forgetting who's who in this story. <laughs> but anyway, if students A can get alcohol and students B more or less can't, I am sure you'll see a difference in performance. And oh, wait, we have that policy in American colleges where students under 21 can't buy alcohol and students over can't. But it's so can't. fluid. But that, that's, that's, yeah. The problem is like a little bit like this. Yes. But my point, I've not seen this study done. It'd right. actually be interesting to see if there's a, if there's a disjuncture when yeah, kids should, turn we should, 21. Yeah, we should look at it. And a lot but, of, yeah. but so the only point I was making about this is that I think one thing that shows again is like there's benefits to being able to go have fun and and take pot, right? It's possible video games also have a, bad, have a negative effect on performance. Like, I don't think when we look at this stuff, we should take enjoyment as completely inconsequential because that isn't how we look at it and other things in life. But you might want to think about drug policy as more of a whole. That one thing we have really good evidence would be good is if people substituted from alcohol to marijuana. They're much safer drivers. I mean, there's a lot of good effects of that. So it's like if you legalize marijuana, maybe you want to triple the alcohol tax or quadruple the alcohol tax. Like there, there are things you could do to try to encourage positive substitution, which we very rarely think about doing. Um, but I, I think what this shows is like, yes, like there are costs to these policies. There are trade-offs here. And you might want to think about them in a, in a broader way. Yeah, I mean, I just think one interesting thing about this is not a policy point, you know, per se, but it's just that I, I do think that uh, – an image is getting out there in as legalization becomes the sort of conventional wisdom among younger people. I think the case that marijuana is harmless 
gets sort of overstated by a lot of people. Um, I don't see any big move out there anywhere to make it illegal to buy Doritos. Uh, but I also think that it is widely understood that like eating Doritos is not healthy. And that if you tried to shift to like an all Doritos diet, that would be bad. You know, just like public health, like facts and, and information. And what's interesting here, I mean, particularly that they don't say it was diversion from studying. Because I think we all know that it's like, if you spend your time doing drugs rather than doing your schoolwork, like your schoolwork's going to suffer and that's a, that's a decision you need to make. I, I don't think it's like that widely understood that using marijuana in your spare time seems to impair your performance like when you're not high. I mean, maybe the result here is driven by people like getting high right before the tests, but that seems a little probably not like the, the case to me. And just like, Something that people should know, just like Doritos will make you fat, is like marijuana is going to impede your ability to do math and other kind of quantitative problems is like something you should think about. Doesn't necessarily follow from that that like we need to throw people in jail. Um, but, you know, it, it's got to be out there in the in the mix of sort of concerns that, that people have. And, and particularly, as Ezra says, when we think about like how lax do we want to get as we get laxer, like how much routine pot smoking by, you know, particularly teenagers, do we really want to see in the country? Because it seems, you know, not like opioids level, like mass death kind of stuff, but that like, you know, like many things that are fun in life, it's genuinely not good for you. Yeah, one of the things that surprised me was how big the effect was, because I would have thought there would have been, like Ezra was saying, a lot of sharing of marijuana like you know if you have your french friend who who is not allowed yeah, in marijuana I mean, it seems stores, like a joke of a policy it seems right? like a joke but it actually you know i was thinking about when i because you, you there's a good example when you like look back to college and there are a lot more hurdles like you have to find someone who is 21 you have to get them to like drive to the store to buy you these like there is um that these policies seem to one thing to suggest is these policies actually restricted access to marijuana in a way that is more effective than I would have thought. Like, you know, I don't know, maybe like all the French people at university are like hanging out with each other. So you have to go like find some Dutch guy and like he's your connection who's going to go shop and you don't usually hang out with the Dutch students. I don't know exactly what these social groups are like at the university in Maastricht, but it it was surprising to me that this seems to have actually done the thing it was supposed to do. Like it, it reduced consumption uh, among the people who were not allowed to purchase in a way that I would not have expected to be possible when you have so many other people having access. So uh, let me offer a theory for for what we're seeing here. And I don't know if they, um, it's possible I miss this in the paper, if they they show sort of distribution, but, but I, I didn't see it. So I, I've talked to Mark Kleiman a lot about marijuana legalization, and, and he's worked on some of the big marijuana legalization policies in, in America. He's a crime and drugs expert and a very, very smart guy, and you should look up his work. But something that he will routinely make the point of is that, like alcohol, marijuana um, usage follows a, a curve where a tremendous amount of the quantity being used is by a very small number of users. So it's like there are a lot of people who use marijuana. And, and I, I I smoke like once every couple of months, right? Like that's the kind of smoker I am. Like it's illegal in D.C. I'm not admitting to anything weird. Like I'm allowed <laughs> to do that, uh, which is weird itself, right? Like that, that's strange to me still. But I don't like it that much, and so I don't do it that much. Then there are people who, you know, like maybe do it once a week. And then there are people, and it's a smaller number, but it's a real number, who become everyday smokers. 
I am not so read up on the epidemiological issues here that I know at what margins you're beginning to see cognitive performance impaired. I'm pretty confident that it's at reasonably heavy smoking margins, right? It's not like you smoked once two months ago and now you can't do math test anymore. That's it's, what you want to tell yourself. <laughs> right. That's yeah, right. I guess that's right. Uh, but what I would not be surprised of in this policy, right? This policy would clearly to me not stop you from being able to get your hands on pot occasionally, right? You got friends, but if it would make it harder to go smoke every day, right? Like if, if, you, if the pattern had been you and your friends go after class to the shop, to the cafe, and you sit and you like have a joint together and like that just becomes a thing, right? It's very easy to see how it fits into your life. Whereas when you have to buy drugs illegally, it's just harder. The supply is more constrained. The supply is more volatile. Like you got to go like talk to this guy. The guy is always um, hard to find, you know, <laughs> it's all this stuff. And if you do assume that the effects are concentrated among heavy users. And we do know, and like, again, like this is Mark's big point about why he's concerned about commercialization of pot and legalization schemes. Like he likes the DC system where you can't sell. He's very worried about what happens when you get like the Budweiser's of pot that are really, really good at marketing to people and like getting people new products and increase their usage and, and so on. Because there are people who will have a lot of trouble controlling usage. Those are the people whom problems will be concentrated among. And those are the people whose problems you want to worry about, right? We often think about legalization in terms of the folks who it's like, they're not doing anything wrong and they're not going to be harmed. But there is this group of folks who they might be harmed. Now, if we can move them off of alcohol and onto cannabis, that's probably a net net good. Actually, that is a net net good. But um, but I wouldn't, I, my guess of why you're seeing the pattern you are in this paper, given the porousness of the policy, is that the policy was probably effective at making it hard to be a very heavy user um, even if it wasn't that effective at making it impossible to get marijuana. Yeah, I mean, something that that I do think is interesting about these kind of cases, just to remind us that, like, they still were not conducting, like, a war on drugs in Dutch cities with, like, no-knock raids on French students' dorm rooms and, and this kind of thing, that, that there are— Outside the sort of specific, like, U.S. drug policy context, we have lots of examples where, like— Gambling is illegal in D.C. and in, you know, most cities and most states. And what that means in practice is that you couldn't, like, open a casino that has, like, here's the casino on the door. And I put up ads and I'm like, come gamble in my casino because you would get shut down because it's illegal. Now, do people gamble in Washington, D.C.? Like, of course they do. Like, people play what? People play poker. People bet on stage. And nobody tries to stop you, right? It's like it hasn't been decriminalized, quote unquote. They just like they don't. The point of the law is to stop you from operating a casino as a business. As far as I know from the Netherlands, it's like what they're doing is they're doing business license regulation, right? You can make money operating a coffee shop selling marijuana to people to whom it's legal to sell marijuana to. They enforce that. You will get shut down if you are breaking the rules. But there's not some like draconian drug enforcement apparatus like peeking in people's houses and throwing people in jail for long prison terms and, and things like that. And it does reduce consumption a lot because the key thing about addicts, right, is that like addicts are your huge money makers. It's not a great business to like sell cannabis or alcohol or anything else to an occasional recreational user. What you want is to find yourself a handful of addicts who you sell tons and tons to. When when you shut down those kind of 
business practices, like you can cut into consumption without creating a, a lot of the sort of law enforcement problems or doing, you know, too much to, to sort of bother people. America doesn't have the particular international type issues, but states that are working toward legalization, you know, may want to look at do they want to shut down like drug tourism as a market? Do they want to just sort of let their own citizens and their own local police departments like focus on serious crime rather than saying we want to develop a uh, cannabis export industry. And Master came out of this experiment deciding no, that this policy was only in place for seven months and then was reopened to everyone. So they appear to have decided that they prefer to have cannabis tourism than this, this stifling regulation on French college students. And we would like all of you to decide to share the weeds with your friends, to rate it on iTunes, to tell people in person about how great it is. Yes. Uh, I would personally like you uh, to listen to my interview this week on the Ezra Klein Show, which I think is related to this conversation a bit, at least. Um, I talked to Dr. Nika Tapia-Jones, who is the first mental health professional to run a major American jail. She's a psychologist. She's running Cook County Jail. which is an 8,000-person jail in, in Chicago. Uh, and it's a discussion about how do you run a jail from a mental health perspective. And and if you're interested in some of these law and order and justice issues, I think it's a pretty interesting uh, discussion. I'm also wearing my cool new Worldly shirt because Worldly is cool. pretty sweet shirt. We don't even have weeds shirts yet. But Worldly is great. And I don't even know where you can get a Worldly shirt, but you can get an episode of the Worldly podcast. Which is almost as good. Where could you do that? Wherever you listen to podcasts. Exactly. Oh, you that's can subscribe. Great. Apple Podcasts. That seems really easy. All of them. Overcast. I should go do that. You should. I guess I already have done that. And when you've gotten through all the news, then you get dessert, which is Todd Vanderwerf's I Think You're Interesting, where you get to actually listen to interesting stories about culture instead of depressing stories about healthcare. Can you also get that wherever you get podcasts? Anywhere. So you could get all these at once? Uh, it, it, it is much unlike uh, Maastricht's 2011 yeah, even, even weed if policy. You're even if you're French. Wow. You can listen to all these podcasts. Even the French get it. That's pretty cool. Fantastic. All right. Uh, see you back in a, in a couple of days. Uh, thanks to our producers, uh, Peter Leonard and, and Jillian Weinberger. And thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, the weeds. Woo. <laughs> 